Hey, good morning, 11 a.m. service. Always happy to see you guys. What was the very first commandment that God ever gave to humanity? Do you know? Oh, some of these guys know. They're familiar with their Bible. Yeah. You might have thought that it was like, I don't know, one of the Ten Commandments, you know, one of the thou shalt nots or something like that. Nope, that wasn't it. So you might even think to yourself, oh, it's Adam and Eve, so it's probably like the rule or the command, don't eat the fruit from that one tree. No, there was a commandment that came even before that. Page one of the Bible, the very first thing that God ever commanded humanity is found in Genesis chapter number one, verses 27 and 28. Let me put them on the screen. I want to read them to you. You're going to be surprised by this, some of you. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and he said, "Woo! be fruitful and multiply. Fill (laughs) Fill the earth and govern it. Yeah, seriously. God's very first command to humanity was go have a lot of sex and make some babies. That was rule number one. Is that surprising to you? It shouldn't be surprising to you. This is like, you know, God's gift. Sex is God's gift. It's his idea, right? It's been pointed out that uh, this command to be fruitful and multiply is the only commandment humanity has ever been good at keeping, all right? We've struggled with every other rule that the Bible gives us, but this one seems to come pretty naturally. What this tells us is something that a lot of people, particularly in churches, miss, is that sex is a good thing. It is a gift from our heavenly father. God is the one who designed our bodies to fit together in such a way and to make it so enjoyable. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) This was God's idea and it was God's plan. And so um, I like to think about like God and Adam and Eve on that very first night. And he's, you know, he's created them and they've named the animals and he's kind of like, all right, I'm gonna leave you guys alone for a little bit. I'll be back to check on you later. So that night, he's like, oh, I wonder what they're up to. And he looks down from heaven, and he sees them naked on top of each other. And he's like, oh, no. And he's like, get off my daughter. No. That wasn't God's attitude. God's attitude was like, yes, that's what I intended. Sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God. And if you've ever been to church and they've told you otherwise, they were wrong. Because the Bible is incredibly clear on this thing. So what I want to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do kind of a mini-series. In the middle of this larger relationship goal series, we're going to take two weeks, and we're going to talk about sex from God's perspective. I was just going to do one week, and then I was like, oh, there's way too much that I could say on the subject. So we're going to do two weeks. We're going to talk about sex from God's perspective. I know you've heard a lot of different perspectives on sex throughout the years, from media, from your friends, from exes, you know, from school, wherever it might be. You've heard a bunch of different views on sexuality. But I want to show you what the scripture has to say about it from God's viewpoint, what he intended and what he hopes to accomplish in your life. And what you're going to discover in this is that a whole lot of stuff that you think the Bible teaches on the subject of sex, it does not. And a whole lot of the things that you've just assumed were true turn out to not be true. And so I want to untangle some of that for you. I want to help give you a a better view on what sex can be. And the reason for that is because God actually wants his people to have awesome sex lives. He really does. God wants you to love making love to your spouse. When you're 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, come on. God wants you to actually, yes, indeed. There we go. God, you guys are way better than the first service. I'm gonna tell you, they were dead. So thank you for rolling with me on this one. God, listen to me now. God is the most sex positive person on the planet. 
in the universe, outside of the universe, God has a higher and better view of sex than any therapist you've ever talked to, any podcast you've ever listened to. God has a very good and high view of sex. And I want you to catch a little glimpse of what could be in your marriage, what could be in your future relationship if you were to take seriously some of the things that he says. Sex does not have to be complicated, confusing, harmful, or shameful. None of those qualities are intended to be a part of your sex life. It's supposed to be better than that. But can I tell you, in order to get to that point, in order to see it the way that God intends us to see sex, we're going to have to confront a lie that we've been told like from the day we were born. This lie is absolutely everywhere in our world. This lie is sex is only physical. Sex is only physical. You've caught this message, you've got it from movies, you've got it from music, you've certainly got it from, you know, uh, uh, your dating apps are full of this idea. This is what they teach kids in sex ed, that really sex is just a physical thing. It's a biological urge and drive, and so it's nothing more than that. We shouldn't make it any more than that. And we're going to dig into that idea today, and we're going to show you some scripture that kind of communicates that maybe there's more going on to sex than we typically think. But what I hope you'll kind of understand, even from the outset here, is that this simple idea, it seems so basic, so inane, so like non-threatening, but this simple idea that sex is merely physical is actually at the root of so much of the sexual frustration and problems in our world today. It really is. So much of your difficulties in your sex life, in your marriage, in your dating season, so much of it comes down to the fact that we believed these four words and we've never critically examined how true they might be. In fact, I believe these four words are actually why people are having less sex today than they have at any time in the last 40 years. Did you know that? Now you say, well, as a pastor, Dan, I would expect you to think that's a good thing, right? Like people shouldn't be having so much sex, you naughty sinners, right? No, that's a bad thing. I actually believe God wants you to have a lot of sex within the right bounds, of course. And so if we really start to examine sex is only physical, this lie that our culture has sold us, then it's going to totally change the way that we view and value sex. So while the world says that sex is only physical, God has a very different take. And we, we find this take kind of starting to be spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, okay? So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6 today. We're going to read a few different sections of this passage next week. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7. And um, what, what I want to do is give you a little bit of context here. Because when I say, um, okay, the Apostle Paul here is writing to Corinthians in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. He's writing to Christians in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. You're probably like, okay, and? That's because we don't really know anything about the ancient city of Corinth. We don't have any context for it, okay? But if I got up here and I said, now in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians that live on the strip of Las Vegas, you'd be like, oh, okay, I kind of get a little sense. Now, I can picture the sort of world that they were walking in. Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world, all right? Like Corinth was the place that everybody in the Roman world went to let their hair down, to let their pants down. I mean, if you went to Corinth, you knew what was gonna happen, all right? Everybody understood what happened in Corinth, stayed in Corinth because it was wild, you guys. This was a crazy place. So I don't have time to kind of, you know, detail everything that was going on, but let me give you a few I don't know, maybe a few examples of how wild and crazy this place really was, okay? 
So in the ancient Roman world, particularly in the city of Corinth, uh, first off, we know that uh, women were the property of their husbands. Wives were the property of their husbands, all right? And that meant that men could do with their wives whatever they wanted, and their wives were required to do whatever their men wanted. There was actually a law on the books that said a man could divorce his wife simply because she didn't perform the way that he wanted her to in bed. Yes, yeah, I mean, it was like, whoo, not exactly a feminist environment, okay? I told you that, you know, there was a lot of like sexual activity going on in the city. Prostitution was crazy common there. Now, I know we live in a world today where that, that sort of thing happens, and you can find it here in Calgary if you wanted to, but I'm talking like it was one of the main industries in the city of Corinth. In fact, it was so integrated into their culture that it was actually a part of pagan temple worship, okay? So if you went to church on a Sunday, not a Christian church, okay? Let me be clear here. If you went to a pagan church, you would go through the typical worship service, and at some point, they would dismiss you. You would go link up with a temple prostitute, and as a part of your Sunday church experience, you would do your thing. It's like when the final amen happens, they didn't dismiss you to go get your kids. They dismissed you to go make some kids, all right? This was a wild city. This was a wild... We do not do that here at Connect. Sorry to disappoint. There was so much just craziness that was happening. It gets worse, and we won't go too far into this, but um, in, the, in the Roman world, Roman citizens were not allowed to be uh, owned as slaves. But if you were not a Roman citizen, then Roman citizens could own you as slaves. And because slaves were legally property, men could do with slaves as they did with wives. And it wasn't uncommon at all for men to sexually take advantage of their slaves. And then you might even remember from your world history studies that Greeks and Romans had this really disgusting practice called pederasty. And we, again, we won't get into all of it, but essentially it was the idea that older men should molest or sexually assault younger boys, and that was a good and noble thing in society. It's like, what? All right, why am I telling you all this gross stuff about the ancient city of Corinth? Because I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is writing to people who have been saved out of some wild sexual circumstances. You with me? Like, their views on sexuality would make most of our views in the modern world look pretty tame by comparison. And so Paul is writing to these people who've given their hearts to Jesus, and they're really struggling, particularly with the sexual teachings of the Bible. Because they're like, I've lived my whole life saying yes, and now you want me to say no? How am I ever supposed to do that? And so they're writing these series of letters back and forth, and Paul's giving them some advice. So let's pick up the passage here. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll start reading in verse number 12. Paul is quoting something that they had written to him in an earlier letter. Okay, so he's answering a question or an argument that they made. So he says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. You can kind of almost flesh this argument out in your mind, you know? The, the Corinthians are like, wait, Paul, when we got saved, you told us that we are saved by the grace of God. All of my sins are forgiven. No matter what I do, God has just wiped away my past, and all of my sins were paid by Jesus, past, present, and future. So if I'm not under the law anymore, and I'm only under grace, then why not, baby? Why not? Paul says, yeah, you can do anything, but not everything is good for you. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And even though, quote, I'm allowed to do anything, Paul says you must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul says, yeah, this is true, but you know, someday God's gonna do away with the need for both of them. He says, but anyway, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about your body. 
Like I could stop right there and preach an entire message just on that one sentence. God actually cares about your body. That's a revelation for some of you guys because you grew up in churches or in religious systems and they were like, body is bad, physical is bad. The only thing that matters is spiritual. No, God created your body and he cares about it. So the Corinthians here are articulating an attitude that most of the people in our world today also have about sex. Basically, it ain't a big deal, Christians. Would you calm down, please? Stop attaching so much weight and guilt and shame and pressure and all those different things like that. Just relax a little bit, would you? Would you calm down? Basically, they argue here that sex is a biological need, just like the need for oxygen or nutrition. And so when people are having sex, they're just doing what their nature programmed them to do. So relax a little bit. I don't know if you caught their argument here. He says, um, you guys told me food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. The, the, the line of argument that uh, the Corinthian church is making is like, okay, Paul, you tell us that we're supposed to say no to our sexual desires outside of marriage and all that sort of stuff. But look, let, let me pitch a little thought here, okay? Um, we have a desire for food, right? It's an appetite. It's a hunger for food. And we have an organ for receiving food. We have a stomach. So it kind of seems like God gave us the desire. He gave us the thing we needed to meet the desire. So we eat food, obviously. Now, if we go by extension, we have a desire for sex and we have organs to have sex. And so maybe by having sex, we're just doing what God kind of created us to do. That's the argument here that they're making, particularly with the food and the stomach analogy, which is kind of clever, but Paul's gonna address it. So basically they're saying, listen, don't lay all this extra weight and baggage on the idea of sin, okay? And uh, I gotta tell you, that sounds really familiar. Okay, this is the same sort of thing that our culture says about sex in the world today, that it's purely physical. Or another way that we might frame, another way you might have heard it, is that our world says sex is an appetite. Sex is an appetite. It's just a normal biological drive. And like all urges and drives and appetites, we need to satisfy it. According to our world, the only boundaries that we should have on sex are consent and contraception, all right? That's it. If you got those two things lined out, then go have fun. You should just enjoy it. It doesn't really matter. You were made for this kind of thing, all right? Um, Again, this message is constantly being pushed on us from every single angle that we might look at. But according to the scripture, and, and the Apostle Paul is about to make an argument here, that sex is more than physical. That sex is more than physical. It is not merely a physical act like eating or drinking or breathing. That when we engage in sex with somebody else, there is something much deeper, something much more maybe even spiritual that's happening in that moment. So he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse 15. He says, all right, you guys are like, ah, sex is an appetite. I'm just doing what God designed me to do. Relax, quit freaking out over stuff like my grandma, all right? But Paul says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? All right, he's about to say some weird stuff here. I know it's weird. Roll with it, okay? Paul says, should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? So he's addressing Christian men in the church who are still going to visit hookers. I don't know if it was in the context of like pagan temple worship or they were like, I got needs. And so I don't know what it was, but he's clearly addressing men who are still living this wild and out sexual lifestyle that they had before they came to Christ. And so he says, "Um, should a man take his body, which is part of Christ and join it to a prostitute? Never. 
And don't you realize that if a man joins himself with a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is already one spirit with him. Oh boy, there is a lot that we could talk about in these few sentences. And frankly, I don't even have enough time. The first message went 45 minutes, so I cut a little bit. Um, So I don't even have time if I gave you the full message to adequately explain everything that Paul's talking about here. But essentially the argument that Paul is making is you guys view Corinthians and maybe by extension 21st century Christians, you guys view sex as merely a physical thing. And sex is physical, but it's not only physical. There's more to it than that. Not only is sex physical, but there is very obviously an emotional component to sex, a relational component. And according to to the apostle Paul, there is also a spiritual component to sex. There is a theological component that that exists. And so um, we're going to circle back to that idea of a spiritual component to sex in the final week of our series. But today I want to focus on the emotional component of sex. And and I want to really hone in on what the apostle Paul says here in verse number 16, where he reminds us yet again that with sex, two people become one. The two shall become one. Paul says, listen, when you have sex with somebody, you are uniting yourself together with them. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you're like, wait, wait, wait. Earlier, we were talking about the the two becoming one. That was in the context of a, a marriage, right? Now you're saying it's in the context of sex. Yes, it's both. Do you realize that way back in the day, there were no like wedding ceremonies like we think about today. There was no like bridal party and flower girl and cake getting smashed into faces. That was all stuff we made up. Do you know how people used to get married back in the day, like in, in the book of Genesis and stuff? You would stand in front of your, uh, your, your partner and you would say, you want to do this thing for life? Yeah. And then you guys would go do it. And that was it. It was like the agreement, the covenant agreement with one another sealed by the physical act of sex. It was sex that sealed the marriage covenant. And so that was it. So according to the scriptures, every time we have sex with somebody, we are uniting ourselves in some spiritual, emotional, and obviously a physical way as well. Remember that what we said is God's ultimate goal for our marriages is to have unity. And unity, or rather, um, if unity is the goal, sex then is not just a God-given way to have some fun. It really is the most powerful bonding agent that exists. Sex is the most powerful way to bring unity and intimacy between two people on earth. Now, um, remember, we've highlighted this phrase here, the two are united into one. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about how that word united in the Greek language that was originally written in, it literally means glued together. It means bonded together very, very tightly. And so um, again, what Paul is saying here is every time we have sex with someone, we're not merely satisfying a biological urge. We're doing something deeper. We're connecting with them in a way that frankly cannot be fully undone. You will be relationally connected to this person in a way that you'll never fully be able to get rid of. Um, If we keep this imagery or this analogy of paper being glued together, like take a few sheets of paper, glue them together, leave it for a couple months, and then try to pull them apart. You know what will happen? The papers are going to tear. There's going to be residue left. They're not going to be the same as they were. Again, this is not a bad thing. This is the way that God designed it. Every time we engage in sex with somebody, it ain't just our bodies that are connecting. It's our minds and it's our souls as well. I can prove this to you. You know this intuitively, even if you've never given it any thought. Have you ever gone to a party in which somebody you slept with at some point in the past showed up? 
You're like, oh, this is awkward. I'm going to go hang out on this side of the room, and hopefully they stay on that side of the room, right? You can't remember every date you've been on. You can't remember every friend you've ever had, but I bet you can recall every person you've ever slept with. At least most of us can. Why? Because when we have sex with somebody, we are bonding with them in a way that cannot easily or even at all be undone. Sex is a glue that unites us to to other people. And now, um, if you're thinking to yourself, all right, Dan, well, I didn't come to church today to get guilted, bro, all right? If you just came to tell me what a bad, dirty, rotten sinner I am and, you know, all these things, you're just trying to heap a bunch of guilt on me, uh, thanks, but I'm done. I I get it. I understand where you're coming from. But can I tell you, I don't even need the Bible to prove or demonstrate what I'm saying to you right now. That we, we can ignore the Scripture and just go to the science, and the science justifies what the Scripture says. Do you know that our bodies are designed in such a way that when you have an orgasm, there are a bunch, yeah, I just said the O word, there are a bunch, there are a bunch of chemicals that are released in your brain. And one of the most important is called oxytocin. It's called the cuddle hormone or the love hormone, okay? This is the exact same hormone that mothers get released into their brain when they are um, giving birth, when they're holding or breastfeeding their baby. This is the hormone that is responsible for us feeling close to somebody, um, trusting somebody, wanting to be near them and and loving them, these feelings of, of love and attachment. All of that comes from this chemical called oxytocin. And it happens every single time we sleep with somebody. It is a natural consequence. So watch this now. Our world says, listen, sex is just physical. You can have consequence-free sex as long as you take precautions. You can, you can do yours, and then you guys can go your way. You can use a hookup app. You can be together for a while as quick or as long as you want to make this thing. doesn't even matter because in the end, there's no commitment. You guys can walk away as if nothing ever happened. But science, not even scripture, tells us that's not true. That when we are, listen, when you're in that moment, all right, and the oxytocin is getting released and y'all suckers are looking into each other's eyes and then you roll away and you stop looking at each other's eyes, there's a bonding that happens there. There is a connection. Your brain chemistry is literally rewired in that moment. It is literally rewired. And so it's just, it's crazy to me that the Bible says something that science has proven true. Thousands of years before chemistry ever taught us how it worked, the Bible says there's no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. Every time you sleep with somebody, you are uniting and bonding with them in a way that cannot just casually be ignored or undone. So what ends up happening then is every time we sleep with somebody, we're bonded, but then, you know, we're not ready to make the commitment. And this wasn't really about that. This was just kind of about satisfying some urges and, you know, having some fun. So what ends up happening is we peel away and there are these feelings because we've used sex in a way, or we've, um, we've uh, undermined sex really is what it is. We've used it in a way that God never intended. And so what ends up happening is we end up feeling some regret, some shame, some remorse. So what do we do? We put some armor around our heart. We kind of pretend like it doesn't matter. And yeah, I know I'm not supposed to, like we said this was just a one-time thing and now I'm feeling some feelings, but I know I'm not supposed to. So I'm gonna ignore them. I'm gonna shield my heart. I'm gonna go on. And then you do it again and you gotta put another layer of protection around your heart and soul and then another layer and another layer and another layer. Pretty soon you got five, six, seven, eight, 25 layers of protection around your heart. Then you finally find the one and you say, I wanna have intimacy with you forever but you've spent 10, 15 years keeping people out, protecting your soul, the real you 
from anybody else and you wonder why the marriage, it just doesn't have any intimacy. I'm not connecting with my spouse the way that I should. It's because you practiced not connecting, not connecting for a really long time. So when, when God says that sex is a glue, it is a bonding, a uniting agent, it's true scripturally, it's true experientially, and it's true according to the science as well. One of the things that I think, and, and this might surprise you to hear me say, because again, I'm a pastor and you might expect the pastor to be like, you know, our world is just too hung up on sex. You, you know, that's naughty and dirty and no, we shouldn't be doing that. You need to think about godly things. One of the things though that I'm just convinced of is not that our world thinks about sex too much. It's that we think about sex too little. We don't really give it any thought. We just, we kind of do what our hormones tell us to do. We don't ask questions about like, what is this doing to me though? How, how is this impacting me? How is this going to impact my ability to have a happy marriage in the future? We don't even want to address that. So we kind of ignore those questions. You know what ends up happening? We let Cardi B teach us about sex instead of the Holy Spirit. We go satisfy our urges in places that we have to keep secret. We end up in counseling because we, we have no idea how to connect with somebody the way you're supposed to in marriage. And all of it comes down to the fact that we don't think about what we're doing. We just do it. I posted this exact line on Facebook yesterday. And I had a couple of pastors and they're like, do you really think that people don't think about sex enough? I think they think about it too much. Yes, it's on everybody's brain. We're not actually thinking about what we're doing and the consequences that might be playing out. So Jesus says in the book of John that it is the truth that will set you free. It's the truth that will set you free. So let me give you a truth that might help connect some dots. Hey, it might even help some of you get free of the sexual slavery, baggage, cycles, habits, addictions that you've been caught up in for a really long time. Earlier, we, we read how the Corinthian church likened the need for food or the desire, the appetite for food to the desire or appetite for sex. Let's put this little chart here on the screen. Remember, essentially what they said is, food is the way to satisfy my hunger appetite, or I have an appetite, so I eat food, right? And by extension, sex. I have a, a, an appetite for sex, and so sex satisfies it. But can I tell you that they got this wrong? If you think about it, they got this wrong. When you're hungry, your body doesn't actually want food. When your stomach is growling, my stomach's growling, I haven't eaten anything. I don't know if you can hear it. I'll try to get the microphone close, but it's like rumbling a little bit. My stomach is not saying, Dan, we need a cheeseburger. It's not saying we want food. You know what my body is actually asking for? It's asking for nutrition. See, nutrition is the need. Food is the vehicle for delivering the need. Ah, wait a sec now. We... Nobody says, I need nutrition. Give me some nutrition. No, we're like, I'm hungry. Give me some food, right? But we know truly what's going on is our body is craving calories and macronutrients and all of those different things. Now, wait, 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 wait. What if the same thing is true when it comes to our appetite for sex? What if our minds and our bodies and our souls don't actually have an appetite for sex as much as they do an appetite for intimacy? Maybe the reason that we're constantly running around hooking up with everybody is because we're seeking intimacy, but we're doing it subconsciously. 
In the same way that you go to a restaurant to get food, but what's really going on is you're trying to get nutrition. When you're seeking after somebody, you're going and having sex with them, what you're really seeking is intimacy. What we want is to be close to somebody. We want to be known. We want to be validated. Sex is the God-given vehicle for that to happen. But we won't get intimacy if we make sex the goal. If sex is the thing that we're focused on, then we're getting it out of order. We're kind of short-circuiting the plan that God has for us. So watch this now. If you were to make food the goal and ignore nutrition, do you know what you have? An eating disorder. If you make food the goal and you ignore nutrition, you end up obese, you end up with diabetes, you end up anorexic, whatever it might be. I mean, the scale goes in a bunch of different directions, right? If we make food the goal and we ignore the nutrition, we know things are disordered. And yet, in our world, we make sex the goal, we ignore intimacy, and we're like, wow, y'all are so liberated. You're so mature. No, we're short-circuiting the plan and process that God has given us. What we're doing is we're getting the physical benefits of sex, but we're missing out on the emotional and the spiritual component that's also supposed to be there. So God doesn't want to ruin your fun. (laughs) That's not his goal. His goal is to increase your fun. His goal is to make sex really enjoyable because what sex is supposed to accomplish is intimacy, not just pleasure. Pleasure's fine. It's good. It should be a part of your marriage. Amen. But it's not supposed to be the only part, and it's not supposed to be the main goal. It's supposed to be intimacy. Now, if that's true, let me give you, let me give you the fact that nobody wants to talk about, and that is that intimacy is fueled by exclusivity and not experience. Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity and not experience. So look, I get it. You're young, you're single, you want to practice or have some fun or just enjoy. I get it. I, I totally get it. I get it. However, if one day you hope that you can have true intimacy with somebody, you're going to have a spouse and you guys are going to commit and you really want this thing to go the distance, then practicing exclusivity now is going to give you intimacy later. But trying to gain a whole bunch of experience now is actually going to be counterproductive to producing intimacy later in your relationship. That because sex unites us with other people in ways that we can never fully take back, we will be unable to fully and completely give ourselves to that person that we want to commit to for life. If I, have, if I have been sexually active with, you know, a handful of other women, let's call it six or seven, I'm not, this is not me personally, I'm just saying, like, as an example here, that's six or seven pieces of me that have stayed with another person that I cannot give to my wife. They're not there. I don't own them anymore. And I'm carrying around pieces of them with me, in a sense, spiritually and emotionally speaking. And so we have this idea that I need to just experience all of it. That's the goal right now in my 20s. That's the goal in my teens. That's the goal in my 30s. However long it takes you to get to that point that you stand at an altar. But the reality is living that way now is going to damage your capacity for intimacy later. Can I just tell you, and listen, I, I, 
I don't know, man. Some of you guys are not going to believe me, but that's okay. I speak from experience here. As a pastor, I sit down in my office, and there's a couple that sits down with me, and they start to share, and they, they're, they're kind of spilling out their sexual frustrations that they haven't talked with anybody else about, you know, and it's like, oh, she's so frigid, and that's all he wants from me. He's like a caveman always attacking me and that sort of thing. It's the same stuff time and time again. I'm not even going to lie about that, but anyway. Can I, it's like, so much of my job is actually trying to help this couple see that the problems that they're experiencing now are because of their unresolved sexual issues in the past. It's because they weren't fully honest when they got together or they never dealt with this bad breakup or this deep sexual relationship. And it continues to play out. Now, look, that's not the only reason that couples have sexual dysfunction, not by a long shot, but it is probably the primary reason. And I see it time and time again. So lovingly, I might challenge you to consider that if you're married and things are sexually not where they need to be, part of it might be because you spent so much of your time trying to decouple sex from relationship. The physical act of making love with the emotional and the spiritual component of uniting yourself, connecting in intimate ways with your partner, that that is the breakdown. That's where there needs to be some healing and restoration. It's not even about the physical side of it. It's about this other side that's going on. Time and time again, I see this. And so what I'm I'm encouraging those of you guys that are still single, if you're in this season, um, I challenge you to pursue exclusivity. Save it. I know that's old-fashioned. I don't even care. What's funny to me is like, you know, people are like, man, the Bible is so old-fashioned when it comes to sex. It's so out of date. And then they trot out a sexual ethic that is so old that it's addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's like, man, you guys don't even know how long people have been saying the exact same thing that you guys are saying. Anyway, if you're young and you're not married yet, I know the desire. I know the push. I know the pressure. But the best thing you can do for your future marriage is to save it. It's to pursue exclusivity and not experience in this moment. Because what ends up happening is for couples that, that have tried to, they've just spent, you know, 10, 15, 20 years practicing decoupling sex from the emotional side of things, you end up with, again, to, to kind of give the stereotype that proves to be true in a lot of situations, um, you end up with a wife who wants relationship and no sex, and you end up with a man who wants sex and no relationship right? And, and, and a lot of people are like, well, that's just because God made men and women different. No, it's because we spent the better part of our adult life practicing sex without relationship, making love without true intimacy, bonding with one another using our physical organs, but not bonding in a way that promotes true intimacy, emotionally, spiritually, and the like. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we, how do we move past this? Well, the Apostle Paul ends chapter number six with a really simple answer. We'll read verses 18 to 20 here and I'll wrap up. Paul says, so Corinthians run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does for sexual immorality is a sin against your own self. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Paul starts here. He says, listen, best thing you can do is run from sexual sin. Now, I want you to notice, Paul does not say run from sex. He doesn't say that. 
I know the church for like hundreds and maybe even thousands of years has kind of communicated. The message of the Bible is run from sex. It's dangerous. Don't even play around with it, right? No. Remember what we said in the beginning. Sex is God's idea. It's his gift. It is something that we're actually supposed to participate in and enjoy. He doesn't say run from sex. He says run from unhealthy sex. Run from damaging sex. Run from sex that's going to compromise your ability to really have good sex once you get married. Now, when he says run from, and I want you guys to understand something, he's not saying, hey, you guys might want to think about just wandering off in a different direction than where you're headed right now. The Greek word that he uses here is like, run for your life. The way that some translations uh, actually translate this is flee, get away from sexual sin, all right? This is kind of like Uh, The the word that he uses here is like, how would you run if a bear was chasing you down the trail in Banff? That's how you should be running from sexual sin because that's the threat it poses to your future intimacy with your spouse. Like get away as quick as you possibly can. So can I get real practical and maybe a little uncomfortable? If you've got, you know, kids in the service, you might earmuff them or maybe you step out for a couple of moments. But hey, listen, if they're 10 years old or older, they need to hear this stuff anyway. Uh, when the Apostle Paul says, run from sexual sin, you know what he's saying in 2022? Shut off the pornography. Some ladies clapping. You're laughing because you're uncomfortable. Do you know that 56% of divorce filings cite one partner's addiction to pornography as a major contributing factor? That breaks my heart. When a guy, and this happens with girls too, don't get me wrong. Um, they don't usually come talk to me though. Um, when, when, when a guy in the church says, Dan, I need to have a talk. And we sit down and he's like, I'm gonna tell you something I've never told anybody. I'm like, all right, you've been on Pornhub, I know. It's like, Come on, man. I get it. I understand. This is such a dangerous thing. Honestly, I think pornography is more dangerous than even the hookup culture that we have in our world today. I really do. Because pornography affects more people. Remember earlier when I told you um, that like, uh, people are having less sex? Do you know why that is? because they can get sex easier in other ways. They can go to somebody in person or they can find a digital girl to do it. And, and so what that means is we're, just, we're even like starting to give up on sex altogether or at least radically shifting what we even think of as sex. It is so detrimental to your ability to commit and to be intimate and attached and love one person for the rest of your life. I wish I could communicate how badly and desperately you need to do something about your pornography addiction. We've talked about this before. Like, guys, if you spend every night or every other night, you know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, if you spend every other night fantasizing and watching and, and connecting with every size and shade of woman in every circumstance you could possibly imagine... How do you ever believe after two decades of training your mind in that way that one woman is ever going to be enough for you? She will never measure up. 
And so this thing that you think is keeping you pure, because I'm not out sleeping with somebody else, so it's keeping me pure until I find the one that I'm actually going to sleep with, is actually ruining your future intimacy with your spouse. Or it's ruining your current intimacy with your spouse. Besides, you guys realize it's all fake anyway. These women are actresses. I told the first service, like imagine that you and your wife went to go see the Batman, right? And afterwards, she was like, after watching him, I don't really like you as much as I did because you're not built like him. You don't have the cool car he does. You ain't got the billions of dollars. You ain't a superhero. You're not fighting crime. I'm not satisfied with you. You would say, but Batman's not real. Neither are they. They're getting paid, bro. And, and I, like, I understand the draw. <laughs> I understand it. But I also recognize that it has power to destroy your marriage or to destroy your kids. So I'm begging you, begging you, begging you. Shut it off. Get some accountability software. Find an accountability partner. Join a support group. Confess your sin and be healed, the way the book of James says. It is really and truly one of the biggest threats to your sexual health. That would be number one. Number two, I would encourage you to start sleeping alone. If you are not married, then stop sleeping with people that you're not married to. Why would you glue yourself to somebody that you clearly don't want to be glued to? That means no more Netflix and chill. No more weekend flings. No more, well, we're already married in God's eyes. Yeah, I know that line. No. Why? Not because you're not supposed to have fun now. God wants you to have the best kind of fun later. Not because God is trying to kill your joy and passion and pleasure. God is literally trying to protect it for the future. And if you were to truly believe that, then you would start to invest now in what you hope to receive later. And then the, the final thing I'll say here under this idea of running from sexual sin, if we're going to run from something, we should run towards something else. And I'll just say, if you are in a relationship, whether it's marriage or not, um, I would say pursue intimacy. Like, don't, don't get caught up in sex. And, you know, if you're a guy and you're like, oh man, you know, we're not doing it as frequently as we want to and all that sort of, or as I want to anyway. Um, like, don't get caught up in that. Focus on the intimacy. Intimacy will produce sex, and sex produces intimacy. It's kind of this nice little two sides of the same coin. So pursue intimacy with your spouse, because that's God's goal. And if you'll satisfy the need for intimacy, you're going to find that one of the primary ways you're going to do that is through sex. So, A, run from sexual sin, and B, oh man, i got to be done. Uh, trust, <laughs> we're going long. Uh, trust in God's forgiveness and his transforming power for all of your sins, even the sexual ones. Like, I don't want you to leave here feeling like, man, Dan really stepped on my toes. And I know I, know I already got it wrong, bro. You don't have to tell me. I, I don't want you leaving feeling that way. I want you to recognize that although sin, uh, sexual sin has a power to damage us in a way that a lot of other sins don't, it is no more difficult for God to forgive than any other kind of sin. It really isn't. There's this um, verse in, in 1 John, and it says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our sin, even the sexual ones. There's this really fascinating story in the book of John. There's a woman who's busted in the middle of the act of adultery. 
like she is naked on a bed with another woman's man. And the neighbors find out and the husband finds out and they bust in, they drag her out into the streets in front of Jesus. They say to Jesus, what do you think we should do to this dirty, rotten, sinful woman? And the Bible says he stoops and he writes something on the ground. It doesn't even tell us what he, re- what he writes, but apparently it's so impactful. The other guys are like, all right, we're going to head out. Probably writing out their sexual sins. You know, he's like, I knew you guys were doing this and this and this and this. So anyway, at this point, it's just Jesus and this woman left. And he says, where are the people who accuse you? She looks around. She says, well, there's nobody. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What Jesus says in this moment is like, yeah, look, you've got sexual sin. God doesn't condemn you for your sexual sin. He genuinely doesn't. But he wants to give you a fresh start, a clean slate. He wants to set you free so that you can go and sin no more, so that you can pursue the intimacy that's gonna give you the marriage that you want in the days to come. Run from sexual sin in all of its forms and then trust God and his forgiveness and transforming power for whatever history you might carry around. 